Here at Doxedo Hatfield, we are a family on mission. Make sure to get connected by joining us at one of our Sunday services. We hope you enjoyed today's message. Doxedo Hatfield, let's open up our Bibles together to the book of Ephesians. If I sound a bit under the weather, I'm feeling a bit groggy, but we're taking another step in our series in the book of Ephesians called Ethnic Blends. And we've been appreciating over these weeks how in Revelation 7, we have this, this view of the end of all things, of the new creation of people, it says, a multitude of nations, the Greek word ethnos, gathering together around the throne of Jesus. And it's that kingdom picture that we are trusting for here on the earth through the church. And so we are constantly saying that we are not a multiracial church because we believe the Bible says there's one race, the human race. We don't see superior or inferior races as people over the ages have said. We are not a multicultural church because, yes, we express the different cultures in our church. We celebrate the different cultures in our church, but we want to elevate one culture, and that is kingdom culture, Jesus's culture in our church. We are a multi-ethnic church, a diverse community of people coming together in the city of Twane to walk together in relationship, to work together for the gospel in the city and to worship God together. That is our calling and our vision. Now, over the last couple of weeks, I got my wife to join me in re-watching on Netflix, Sherlock. It's that great 2017 remake of this classic kind of British story of the detective, and they got, I think, the most British-sounding actor in the world to portray the main character, Benedict Cumberbatch, what a great name, but an even greater series. And one of the great joys in the series is seeing how you get these little clues, just these little breadcrumbs as to what the mystery is all about. And then usually somewhere in the episode, just through his brilliance, Sherlock will reveal what the fullness of that mystery is. Now, when we started the book of Ephesians, Paul gave us a clue, a breadcrumb. He said in chapter one, verse nine, He made known God to us, what? The mystery of his will. Speaking of Jesus and the gospel. And today we are going to see the revelation, the revealing of what that mystery is all about and how it implicates us, our church and the city. And I want to say that is lacquer my brew. Now, we've been speaking about different slang terms we use in our country, and I appreciate those. But let's be honest, lacquer has got a special place in our hearts. Of all people in South Africa, and when you say something is lacquer, it's not just, you know, that, that it's enjoyable, that it's good. It's saying that the world is as it should be. When you receive that double thick extra Oreo McFlurry, you say lacquer, my bro, because the world is as it should be. And as my Durbanite friends taught me long ago, the opposite of lacquer my brew is what? Naught my brew. Zero. Naught. That's bad. So I remember when they updated my load shedding app to include all the way up to level eight. And level eight literally is like you get three minutes in your day to just smell a bit of electricity in your house and then it's taken away again. That's naught my brew. Or when I see, you know, crooked and, and politicians, you know, that are corrupt, making billions of rands of COVID-19 relief funds disappear, that's not my brew. Or when I think of a company who at the very least, they are tone deaf and at the worst, they make a blatantly racist shampoo ad, we just say, not my brew. 
Um, but I want to say, I want to commend Diskem for jumping on that bandwagon because I saw that ad online where they said, you know, shop now at Diskem online because you are only a couple of clicks away. And I thought, oof, that is a deep burn. Well done. But we all say to those things, not my bro. And so Paul is coming and he's saying, if the church in this city is simply going to repeat the cultural patterns of hate or segregation, of division. That's not my bro. It's not good. It's not as the world and the church should be. But when a church takes on the kingdom mandate and draws all these different people around the cross and the throne of Jesus and starts to display the kingdom to our city, that is lacquer, my bro. That's great. And so let's read what Paul has to say. Ephesians 3 verse 1. For this reason... I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming you've heard about the administration of God's grace that he gave me for you, the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I've briefly written above. By reading this, you are able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. This was not made known to people in other generations, as it is now revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. The Gentiles, and this is the mystery, are co-heirs, the non-Jewish people, members of the same body and partners in the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I was made a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace that was given to me by the working of his power. This grace was given to me, the least of all the saints, to proclaim to the Gentiles the incalculable riches of Christ and to shed light for all about the administration of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. This is so that God's multifaceted wisdom may be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavens. This is according to his eternal purpose accomplished in Jesus Christ our Lord. In him, we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. So then I ask you not to be discouraged over my afflictions on your behalf, for they are your glory. Paul says we need three convictions. We need three hills that we will die on. And the first is we need a theological conviction, a belief nested in the Bible, in our biblical worldview. Secondly, we need a personal conviction. Do I own this vision? And thirdly, we need a collective, a communal conviction. Is our culture lacquer may brew? So the first one, Paul says we need a theological conviction. He says our beliefs have to be lacquer may brew. So verse four, he says this, By reading this to you, you are what? Able to understand my insight into what? The mystery of Christ. Verse 9, to shed light for all, understanding, revelation, about the mystery hidden for ages in God. Paul says that before the time of Jesus, the people did not have a full understanding of what God wanted to do in and through the Jewish people for the whole world. Genesis 12, I'm going to bless not just you, but I'm going to bless the whole world through you. But now, he says, that revelation has been opened up for us in Jesus. 
And what is that earth-shattering revelation? It's almost like Paul can't wait to share it. He's, he's giddy with excitement as he writes verse 6. And it says this, This is the mystery revealed. That the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people like most of us, are what? Co-heirs. They are going to inherit everything of Jesus. They are members of the same body. We've become one spiritual body and partners in the promise in Christ Jesus. It was this revelation that the Jews and the Gentiles, that all peoples are one in Christ. And this rocked Paul to his very core. This was, like I said, this was life-changing revelation for him. Because guess what? He was a champion of generations, centuries of Jewish religion and practice. And now realizing that everyone who is united in Christ is united to everyone in Christ. That was a massive, massive thing for him to realize. To realize for me and you that that person that I differ with, that person that I would never befriend in any other circumstances, That person that represents a group that I find detestable, I find their views and their practices, it's not, you know, palatable for me. He says, if those people are in Jesus through faith, you are co-heirs. You are in the same spiritual body. You live under the same promise in Jesus. We are not together in the church because of our similar economic statuses because of our similar views, because of our similar preferences for how the country should be run, or our similar languages and similar cultures. No, he says you are not in the church together because of those similarities. You are in the church together in spite of your differences. We have been brought together, Paul says. Now, why does Paul hammer this so much over and over again in his letters? And it's because of this. We have to understand what is our why. Why do we do what we do? And Paul wants to make it clear to us that if you think, you know, we're speaking about multi-ethnicity in the church and how it influences our city and our country, we're probably doing it because it's politically correct, right? Because the whole world is speaking about it. We're under political pressure. We, you know, we feel the church has to catch up with the world. Everyone's speaking about things. So let's jump on the bandwagon. We feel pressure in some way. And Paul and I'm going to say today, that's nonsense. We do not have a political agenda. We have a biblical agenda. Guys, all over the church's history, and you see it in the book of Acts, telling the story of the early church. There are these moments where the church makes this, this gear change to realize it's not just good news for you or for me. It's good news for all. And that implication changes everything about how I live, about how I interact with people in the city. So let me give you an example of that. In Acts chapter 11, you have this guy called Stephen. He was one of the early leaders in the church. And he preaches the gospel of Jesus and he gets killed for it. And in that moment, it says this persecution broke out against the church. Now listen to what it says here. Acts 11 verse 19. Now those who had been scattered as a result of the persecution made their way as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, speaking the word, the good news of Jesus, to no one except Jews. 
Verse 20, but there were some of them who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks also, proclaiming the good news about the Lord Jesus. And verse 21, this is key. The Lord's hand was with them, that second group, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. Do you see that even in the early church, those early Jewish followers still had a mindset of this is the Jewish Messiah for us. But slowly and surely, some individuals started getting this theological conviction. It gripped them that this is for all people. This is for all of us. It's not just for the Jews. It's for the Greeks. It's for the Romans. It's for the the whole of Asia Minor. It's for the world. And so those people that I so deeply disagree with, these other ethnic groups that have hurt me, that I've got animosity towards, in Jesus, they are as renewed as I am. Do I carry that conviction? Because God says his hand was upon that message. The message of bringing people into reconciliation with God in Jesus and that bringing them into reconciliation with one another. Friends, we have to have this as a biblical conviction because there are so many organizations in the world at the moment, so many individuals that are having their own conversations about diversity and about multi-ethnicity and about you know, uh, outcome and, and how we have to force these things. And so many of those conversations are toxic and they don't share our views. So let me give you a very current but very controversial example. There's a pastor in America called Dr. Eric Mason Great black pastor and preacher. He is a brilliant academic, sharp mind. I love his preaching. And he's not afraid to offend people. And I listened the other day when he spoke about this idea. He said there is a difference between supporting Black Lives Matter, the movement or the hashtag, and Black Lives Matter, the organization. Because as he said, if you go back to 2013, there was this eruption of emotion. Trayvon Martin was was killed tragically, and the whole of America was up in arms. And so three people started this hashtag, Black Lives Matter. It went viral, and soon after that, they started an organization that is now a global organization. And he says, Dr. Eric Mason, this black pastor, he says, listen, when we are marching together for the rights of of African-Americans, then I am marching with you. And I will support the slogan, Black Lives Matter, because that is biblical. Genesis 1.26, we are all made in the image of God. He says, I can support that. And, And might I just say, that's where we should be as well. We can say, yes, black lives do matter. And we don't have to be those people who dive in and say, no, but all lives matter. Guys, can we be honest? You know, if, if people are fighting for rhinos to not be poached in Africa, and someone says, no, but what about all the animals? <laughs> you know, or it's Cancer Awareness Month, and someone says, no, but what about all the other sicknesses and ailments? No, we're saying, yes, those things are true. That's never not true. Of course, all lives are, are precious to God, but in this moment, we are highlighting an issue to see it addressed. But then he makes a very critical distinction and he says, yes, I can support the movement and I can support that message. But the organization has got a different worldview. If you go onto their website today, you can go and look at their beliefs. If you go and look at critical interviews with the co-founders, you will see a very different worldview at work. 
And so they say from their own mouths, we are here to disrupt the nuclear family. So, you know, husband, wife, kids, we are here to disrupt that. They say we are here to throw off heteronormative thinking. So biblical sexuality, we want to throw that off. So this Dr. Eric Mason, he says, and he's passionate, he says, I will march with you when it comes to Black Lives Matter, the, the movement. And then he shouts in a sermon and he says, but I will not march with you. When it comes to issues of abortion, when it comes to issues of a progressive, you know, postmodern sexual agenda, when it comes to disrupting the, the God-given family that God has given us as the cornerstone of society, I will not march with you, he says. Why? Because the why is so different. The resources and the reasons are different. And guess what? The Bible gives us such a robust and powerful picture of justice. We don't need secular justice. We don't need secular organizations' views about justice because the Bible gives us a powerful, deep, and robust view of how the church works toward justice in the world. We have to get our reasons, our resources, our why. Our theological conviction has to be solid. So why are we fighting to be a multi-ethnic church in a divided city like Pretoria? Is it because Joe said so? Is it because, you know, we, we just want to get rid of some of the guilt that we have in our country? Is it because we feel political pressure? No. It's because of the Bible. It's because of Jesus and his message. We don't have a political agenda. We have a biblical agenda. We are not under any pressure to be politically correct. We want to be spiritually correct. Are my beliefs lacquer my brew? But Paul says, it's not just our convictions, theological convictions. We need a personal conviction, each of us. This needs to become a lifestyle mission for me. So listen to what he says, verse 1. He says, for this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, what, on behalf of you Gentiles, you non-Jewish people. He says, I was, verse 7, made a servant of this gospel. How? By the grace of God. Verse 13. I ask you not to be discouraged over my afflictions. Why? Because they are on your behalf. Paul took this incredibly seriously. It wasn't a weekend hobby for him. No, he said, you know, we don't actually know where Paul was imprisoned when he wrote this letter to the Ephesians. Most academics go back and forth, and it sounds like Rome is the probable option. But the point is, he was in prison for his faith for sharing the gospel to all these people groups, bringing unity in a, in a divided country, in a divided region. And he could have said, you know what, I'm in prison because of the Jewish people. I'm in, in prison because of the Romans. You know, he could have said that. He could have blamed them. But he doesn't do that. He says, yes, they were involved, but that's incidental. The reason I am here is because of this message I've internalized this message. I'm a prisoner for this message. I will suffer for this message. I will give my very life for this message for these people. I'm willing to suffer and die for this. That is conviction that had set upon his life. He'd become a champion of the message of reconciling with God, our Father, through Jesus, and through that reconciling with one another. And think about that. He became a champion of that. And yet Paul, in his past, was a champion of Jewish-only religion. He was a champion of that. Listen to how he speaks of his past in Philippians 3 verse 4. He says, if anyone else thinks they've got ground for confidence in the flesh, I have more, he says. 
circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews. Regarding the law, I was a Pharisee. Regarding zeal, I persecuted the church. Regarding the righteousness that's in the law, I was blameless. Paul says, I crossed every T, I dotted every I with regard to Jewish religion and culture. I represented and championed that cause that represents centuries. And guess what? I was rocked by the revelation that it's not just for us, it's through us. It's for the whole world. It's even for those historic enemies of the Jewish people. God wants to redeem them, bring them into one family, bring them into one body. Bring them into the same promise. Can you imagine what a turn that must have been for Paul? You know, I think of the fact that it's almost like this, the story of, of Jeff Shoup is the one guy's name, and Daryl Davis. I, I saw them the other day in a, in a panel discussion together on a stage. And Daryl Davis, he's this famous... Um, jazz musician, but he also has this incredible story as a black man in America of giving his time to conversation and friendship with KKK members and how he just engages them in respectful relationship and conversation. And he has converted, in a sense, more than 200 KKK members away from their white supremacy beliefs. And this Jeff Shoup, who's on the stage with him, he was the leader of a neo-Nazi organization like that. They hated black people. And he was, through this relationship, brought out of that mindset, and he is now a champion of racial reconciliation in that country. Can you imagine the change that had to happen? Part of my core beliefs is that you are an inferior race and person. But I have been transformed to see myself as an agent, as an owner of this vision. Has that come upon you? Have you realized that God has called you as his agent of change in this country? Because listen to what it says in verse 7. Paul says, I was made a servant of this message. How? By the gift of grace. The gift of grace. You know, grace is the unmerited favor, the unmerited commitment of God to us in Jesus. And we often think that grace is only there to forgive us, to redeem us, to restore us, to renew us. But Paul says, yes, it does all of that, but it also enlists you. It empowers you for mission. It draws you into a passion. Church is not something that I do once a week on a Sunday. It has become the message and the mission that I live with 24-7. Have you come to that place where you own the vision of reconciliation in our country and in our city through Jesus? Where every interaction you have, when you're at the shop, when you're at work, when you're talking with someone on the street, and the way that you raise your kids, and the way that you engage in political discussions, are you a champion, a servant, as Paul says, a prisoner for this message? Has it captivated your heart? Dr. Hatfield, do you realize that some of you sitting and listening to me today God has chosen you to bring creative solutions to our country's ailments. Some of them will be on a small scale, just for your home, maybe for your block of flats, for your neighbors. And some of them will be, will be large scale through your company, through organizations. God has given you creativity to be his change agent in this country, has the message 
of bowing before Jesus in faith as King and Savior, and thereby being reunited and working through our past together, has that gripped your heart? You need a conviction, Paul says. When I think of that conviction, I think of Father Michael Lapsley. He was a South African Anglican priest, and he was an anti-apartheid activist. And because of his views, he was hated by people. And so in April of 1990, in the, in the kind of death throes of apartheid, he got sent a letter bomb by these people who hated the fact that our country would possibly change. And this bomb literally blew off both of his hands and he lost one of his eyes for this cause that he believed and because of his faith. And listen to what he says. Friends, this is wisdom. It is clear to me that there's a lot of unfinished business that we all carry in different ways. We will be dealing with the past of this country for the next hundred years. Although we tend to say, no, we've done that. It's time to move on. Friends, can I challenge us? Our country has got such a checkered past and so many of us of different ages and backgrounds carry the weight of what's happened in this country in so many different ways. And we have to deal with that in a biblical way in front of the cross and the throne of Jesus. And I want to challenge you, can you take up that mantle to be part of that solution? Maybe just two things I could ask you is number one, let's press into the difficult conversations. Let's deal with these issues in a respectful and gracious way in the church together. I know that some of you feel I'm tired of, of BEE or you know, political correctness or, or things being you know, forced down my throat, but can I ask us to be gracious? For some people, this is sacred ground that is yet to be opened up. Can we just be honest in our community groups, in our relationships, when we have coffee, when we're in one another's homes, let's be open and honest and let's listen to one another. Some of you today, you feel in this country unwanted. Some of you feel deeply disadvantaged in our country. Some of you feel helpless and futureless in our country. Can we connect with one another and hear how we are carrying the weight of this journey? Some of you carry guilt. Some of you carry pain. Some of you carry frustration. Because we're between a rock and a hard place. We had an evil regime being driven in our country, and now we've got an inept government running our country. We have to take up this cause in our hearts. And, you know, I think of the other day, one of the, the partners in the church told me that after our sermon on this idea of Jesus wasn't white. It's not like a Western invention. He kind of felt like, oh, well, I know that. I think it's fine. But he was in the boiler room just after the service online, and he was praying with one of the young black girls in our church. And he said, she told him that message was so freeing to her. Becoming a Christian and hearing from other black people in her circle of influence, oh, but that's a white religion. That's a Western religion. And suddenly having the tools to say, no, there's such a rich African tradition. Just because something doesn't make sense to me, that's not where I am. Just think about the other people in the church. Think about the histories. I think about our conversations, our ethnic blends conversations. You know, Josh saying that he grew up in the Bantu stands in South Africa. These areas demarcated for black people, shoved into these spaces to live there. And one of the other leaders in the church saying, I didn't even realize that was a thing in our country. 
And both of them sit next to each other in our church. Guys, we've got such different histories. Can we be open? Can we be gracious? Can we learn? Can we be taught? And secondly, I want to ask you, is just open up your home intentionally in this next season. Invite people in Hatfield. Don't wait for us to have some kind of program. You do it. You own the vision. Invite people of this church, diverse people into your home. Get to know them. Tell them your story. Hear their story. Have you become a champion of what Jesus wants to do in this city? We need a conviction that is lacquer may brew. And lastly, Paul says, not just theological and personal, but we need a collective conviction. Is the culture, the communal culture of Dr. Hatfield, is it lacquer may brew? Because Paul says in verse 10, all of this, he says, is so that what God's multifaceted wisdom may now be made known through the church, to the rulers and authorities in the heavens. This incredible discovery for the early church that everyone that's united in Christ is also united with one another. It was massive, and for us, we feel, okay, but that's not, it's not so big. It's, we're kind of over that because we take it for granted. And we don't realize that for most of history and almost all cultures, division and separation and segregation and animosity was the standard. So for this unity movement around Jesus to erupt from the Middle East and go all over the world and bring peace where it's embraced and lived out, it's radical. It's radically counter-cultural. And that's how Paul saw the church, friends. It's counter-cultural. Some of us see the church as an organization that holds a little gathering on a Sunday where we sing some songs and we drink a bit of tea. But Paul saw the church as these little outposts of the kingdom of God on earth. It's a foretaste. It's a concept of the eternal new creation community erupting in these spaces in the city. And it's displaying, Paul says, it's making known everything that God is, his grace, his truth, his justice, his holiness. It's making it known to the city. He says to the heavenly realms, and again, all throughout Ephesians, it's not speaking about a place. And and in heaven, it's speaking about a heavenly reality. It's a spiritual reality in our city that we don't often see. It's the forces, the spiritual forces in our city driving, animating what's happening in a city that's not from God. And Paul says, countercultural church is a, it's a, it's a clarion call to those spiritual realities in the city to say the kingdom of God is here and it's drawing people to Jesus and it's drawing them together. Is that our conviction, Dr. Hatfield? That we are a counter-cultural mission and family displaying who God is to a cynical city. Well, are we just a bunch of people who, you know, drink some tea and sing Kumbaya on a Sunday? We have to have a conviction of our fellowship and our mission doing something so significant in the city. Because at the end of the day, a diverse church that's united in the city of Tuane, I think is one of the most powerful pictures to people about who Jesus is. In fact, that's how Jesus saw it himself. In John 15 to 17, when he's praying for his future disciples, he said this, he said, may they all be one, united, wherever they find themselves, 
Why? So that the world may believe that you have sent me. So that they may believe. And it's amazing, in the Greek, that so that is introducing a clause. It's called a hina clause. And this Greek clause is almost like a, an if-then. If X, then Y. You know, if I bonk you over the head with a hammer, you will have a bad headache tomorrow. But this if X is not guaranteed. If X doesn't happen, Y will not happen. So in the Greek, Jesus is saying here that if my church in whatever city or culture or country it finds itself with all of the divisions and the history and the pain present in that space, if a diverse church will come together in unity, then it's guaranteed that people will be drawn to Jesus. It's the most effective picture we have in the city of who Jesus is and what he has done. You know, I think of one of the leaders in Doxodeo. He used to lead one of our campuses for a long time. He's now in the academic world. Black man, just great guy. And I'll never forget him telling the story of when he had to do his practical year after studying theology. He was placed in a rural town with this Afrikaans white couple. This guy's also a pastor and his wife. You know, he was placed with them. And the first time they had to eat together, this white lady presented to him this black pastor in training, his food in a dog bowl. In a dog bowl. Friends, the depth of the brokenness in our country is so deep. We need, and this guy was, he's not a hundred years old, he's in his early fifties. This didn't happen millennia ago, it was yesterday in this country. We carry such deep weight still of so many different sorts. We need a deeply convicted community that will be a countercultural force for good in this city. I just end off just with this brilliant thought. Ephesians 3 verse 11 says this. It says, in him, in Jesus, we have what? Boldness and confident access through what? Through faith. Some of you listening to me today feel that I am disqualified. My history, my, my brokenness, what's been, what's been done to me, I don't qualify before God. I can never come before him. I feel ashamed of my life. And some of you feel proud. You feel, I don't need God. I have my career. I have my skill set. I have my beliefs. I have my philosophy. I have my money. I have my, I have my affluence. I have friends. Why would I need this? But hear how Paul says that when the, the cross of Jesus, when God stepped into the world, on the cross of Jesus. He came to show us that we are not in access with God at the moment. We have lost ourselves. We don't know how to be human anymore. And all the money and sex and power in the world will not fix it. You will live with the rest of your life with that deep sense of brokenness in you. Deep sense of longing for something more. But Jesus came to bring us into what he says, access. And he says, we have what? Boldness and confidence. You know, when in the lockdown, I had to set up a little space in my room just to be able to work when we couldn't go to the office. And so I would sit there and you know what? My kids wouldn't knock if they wanted to come in. They would just come in. Little Mia, three years old, she would just with boldness and confidence come into my room and show me the newest drawing that she had made. Why? Because boldness and confidence is relationship. And access speaks of the fact that, yes, there is now a king, Jesus, and his kingdom. And you choose to either save your life 
by bowing before him or you choose to forfeit your life forever. And he says, you will never see a clearer picture of the love and the truth of confident access to our Father than in Jesus. Have you come to that point? Today, you can pray and say, Jesus, will you be my King and Savior? I lay down my life. I'm not asking for a second chance of my own life. I'm laying down my life and taking up yours. Has this grace, has this confident boldness before God captivated you? Has it given you a conviction theologically? Has it given you a conviction personally? Has it gripped us collectively? Because of that, it's like a micro. Let's pray. Jesus, may you do something so significant in our hearts as individuals and as a church through your spirit, through the good news, grace of Jesus. We pray, God, for a city for hearts and a country that will never be the same because of you. Amen.